We'll be uh, reflecting for a few moments uh, this, uh, this hour on the book of Romans, chapter 5, and I invite you to keep your uh, finger uh, there as we'll reflect on specifically Romans chapter 5, verses 3 through 5, as we continue uh, this short series on the topic of, of hope. Uh, I really appreciated your prayers uh, during my quarantine, and uh, our, my family is, we're all better, and uh, it did give me a chance last Sunday during quarantine to uh, catch up uh, with one of my old uh, friends who used to live in uh, uh, the Longwood Christian community. Uh, and when, uh, when he, we talked, he began by uh, saying to me, Michael, I, I've been really wanting to, to, to talk to you for some time, but I've been hesitant because I feel shame. And I was surprised. What's, you know, what's been going on? Well, he then proceeded to, uh, to tell me how he had uh, received his dream academic job uh, teaching psychology, uh, of future leaders in his field, uh, and things had been going very well uh, until two years ago, just before COVID had begun. Uh, he had been put on probation uh, at his university because really what amounted to misunderstandings and, uh, and also some false accusations. Uh, during this academic probation, he did everything that he was told that he needed to do. He did it as well as he could to grow for himself uh, so that he could become uh, a, a better professor, and he really was led to believe that things were being resolved uh, for, for uh, uh, as he wished and, and, and hoped for. Uh, he went into uh, this final meeting uh, thinking that it was going to be th the last meeting, and unfortunately it was, but in the opposite direction, because as he met with his academic chair and some of the higher-ups in the university, uh, they informed him that they had lost confidence in his ability to perform uh, uh, his duties, and as a, an assistant professor, not with tenure, uh, he, they were not going to be uh, renewing his contract for uh, the next year. Uh, my friend, Dr. V, I'll just, that's not obviously not his real name, he was, he was stunned, and uh, his life was completely thrown into turmoil. Uh, all your breakers and your waves have gone over me, Psalm 42 that we just read, uh, became very much true in, in his own experience. Uh, his academic career was seemingly uh, came to a crashing halt. His alma mater, which the school that he trained at and, and, and deeply loved, uh, had turned on him and uh, what he believed very, uh, very much so based on false accusations. Uh, he stopped, he, he was having trouble sleeping, uh, he fell into what he described as a, a, a clear a depression, and rather than, uh, while he was on probation, he sensed from God that he was going to, uh, that he was going to be vindicated, and that these false accusations would become clear to everyone, and that things would be uh, just, okay, just right. But he wasn't vindicated. Uh, and the, the, the truth of Psalm 42, my adversaries taunt me all the day long, where is your God? That became also the, the taunt that he felt within his own soul. Dr. V was traveling the path of suffering. Well, what is suffering? Suffering is an intense, often prolonged disintegration of one's personal wholeness, and it's experienced in the loss of a good, or at least a perceived good, and it's in the loss of one's good future. 
part of suffering is this sense of an attack upon yourself as a person. Your very personhood is being frayed away and, uh, and disintegrated. You lose a sense of control and a sense of your identity, of who you are. Suffering is kind of like a, a black hole where the, the, there's an implosion of the good. Evil is devouring life. There, there's a sense of uh, an erosion of paths to hope. It's clear in our own experience that suffering obviously takes us down a path opposite the path of hope. They go in opposite directions, do they not? And yet, as we read in verse 3, these shocking words of the Apostle Paul, he says, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. How can that be? Well, within the larger context of the book of Romans, Paul is laying this out the argument of the wonderful abundance of the salvation that has been accomplished by Jesus Christ. Uh, though we cannot earn the righteousness of God, Christ has earned this for us, uh, redeeming us out of the law and out of our own sin and accomplishing a great salvation. Uh, this is something where he brings peace with God, access solely by faith, in which we're reconciled to him through the work of Jesus Christ. It leads in verse 2 to this hope of the glory of God. Of course, that's what salvation is. This, there's this abundance. There's this joy to abound in hope. And the glory of God, because of this salvation, makes complete sense. But then we encounter what, in Paul's argument, is almost like a parenthesis in verses 3 through 5. How on earth can we rejoice in our sufferings? We think suffering puts us to shame. But what Paul is arguing is that suffering is not the problem. It is, in fact, the very pathway to hope. And what I'd like to do is very clear in this text that we're focusing on, that there are three movements along this path from suffering to hope. And let's uh, travel that path together now. The first is this. We begin the path with a move, movement from suffering he says, to endurance, if you look at verse 3. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that our suffering produces endurance. And it's important, I think, just to pause for a moment. He does not say suffering, we rejoice for our sufferings. He says in. And I think that's an important distinction. If to rejoice for our sufferings would imply that you actually are rejoicing for the good thing or for the, for the suffering that you have as if it's a good thing. Not, not, not at all. Suffering is the result of evil. And it's suffering is an extension or the impact of evil upon our lives. And God takes no pleasure in evil, nor does he take pleasure in the impact of evil in suffering. So even though it's a little preposition, I think it's important to realize when we see the word in, rejoice in sufferings, in should be better understood or translated within the midst of. So we don't rejoice for cancer, but we can rejoice even in the midst of having cancer. But then he continues. Paul says that suffering produces 
What does it produce? Well, it's clear that we can kind of conceptualize this as producing two opposite potential things within our lives. Suffering can lead to, on the one hand, an internal collapse of our souls. One of the great Holocaust books by Viktor Frankl, uh, in his, it's a classic, Man's Search for Meaning. If you've never read it, it's a, an important autobiography of, of Frankl's experience of having gone to the concentration camp of Auschwitz and some of his reflections as a psychiatrist. And in that book, he, uh, one of the things he, he talks about was the witnessing of certain prisoners and the importance of trying to encourage the prisoners to maintain hope despite all of the awful suffering and evil that they were experiencing, because once a prisoner, they saw it, a multi, he saw it multiple times, once a prisoner really lost hope, there was kind of a complete mental collapse. And uh, they, once this happened to a prisoner, they could be beaten, they could be whipped, threatened with their life, dragged around, and they became utterly despondent and non-responsive. Uh, and they said when, whenever this happened, we, we knew it, was, it would be within 48 hours that the person would be dead. And of course, that's an extreme example, but we all know when we experience suffering that it presses upon us. And it feels like there is a potential collapse, and there can be different kinds of collapses that we experience. But there is this other, on the other hand, this opposite kind of effect. Suffering can produce that collapse, but it can also produce a positive inward change. In fact, Frankel, in his own experience, he says, when we are no longer able to change a situation, we are challenged to change ourselves. And that's what I think what Paul is getting at when he says that suffering produces endurance. Endurance. What does that mean? Does it mean, it doesn't just mean to grin and bear it or to just get through the suffering so that you can start living again. Uh, the word endurance in the Greek can be, it literally means to bear up under. You have the pressure on you and to bear up under it. Aristotle uses this very same uh, Greek word in reference to the virtue of courage. And uh, also interestingly, uh, I think Thomas Aquinas, who, who reflects uh, a, a, a millennial, millennium later, reflects on this virtue of, of courage or endurance, and he uses the Latin word fortitude, which is the sense of having internal strength. Fortitude is the virtue that enables a person to withstand intense difficulties as you hold out for a greater good. It's not lacking fear. You can have, with fortitude, you can, uh, you can feel afraid, and yet also at the same time experience bravery in order to stand under the difficulty or to stand against evil. So fortitude is, for example, what strengthens a student to work even harder after getting a, a, a bad grade. Or it's what empowers a fireman to go into the fire rather than to run away. It's, it's internal strength, this courage, fortitude. Or it's what strengthens a disabled person to run hard after the purpose that God has given them, even if they cannot run at all. The, the quintessential example around fortitude is martyrdom. It, it's what gives the will of the martyr 
to go to the stake rather than to recant his or her faith and to walk away free. A, a contemporary word uh, for fortitude uh, is the, uh, the word grit. Angela Duckworth, uh, in her uh, book, 2016 book, Grit, uh, The Power of Passion and Perseverance, uh, talks about the, um, in her research, uh, the West Point cadets. And they were trying to understand why uh, so many cadets were, were, were dropping out of West Point within the first two months. In fact, 250 of 1,200 cadets on average per year were dropping out of West Point after the first seven weeks. And it's important to realize that these cadets were no slackers by any stretch. It, took a, it was a two-year process beginning in their junior year of high school in order to get into West Point. And they, West Point only had an 8% acceptance rate. These were high school varsity captains and valedictorians and Eagle Scouts and top athletes with top GPAs. But they went into this seven-week training period, the first seven weeks at West Point, and it was nicknamed Beast. Uh, it was a seven-week-long program in which there was uh, no, no days off or seven days a week, beginning at from 5 a.m. to 10 p.m., and uh, Beast was deliberately engineered to test the very limits of the cadets' physical and, uh, and emotional and mental capacities. And what Duckworth discovers in her uh, research is that what is it that uh, primarily predicts a cadet staying in the program or dropping out? It's not aptitude or IQ or uh, prior successes. It's grit. She defines grit as this having a, four characteristics. Uh, it's having a strong sense of calling of what you're supposed to be and where you're supposed to, how you're supposed to do it. It's having also cultivated within yourself a habit of practicing hard and well. Uh, she uh, 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 suggests that grit is also having, being guided by a higher purpose beyond just yourself. And then finally, uh, grit is having this mentality, a growth mentality, that when you fa fail, you get up and you have the belief that you're going to work harder and you're going to get better at this, rather than just simply being satisfied with where you are. Perhaps the quintessential movie, one of my favorite movies growing up, that uh, displays grit is the 1976 movie Rocky. Rocky had a lot of, a lot of grit. Well. How do you get grit? Grit's not inherited. Grit is something that is learned. You can learn grit in school or at home, and we most certainly learn fortitude or endurance uh, in God's schoolhouse, the school of suffering. It's the school of hard knocks. Irrespective of age, everyone is enrolled. And the good news is tuition is absolutely free. <laughs> In Hebrews 12, it says, Have you forgotten? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastises every son whom he has received. It's important to remember that discipline is not punishment. Discipline is training 
in order for you to become who the Lord really wants you to be, in order for you to do what the Lord really wants you to do. So we begin down this path from suffering to endurance. But we continue to a second movement, from endurance to character. The word translated character is associated with metallurgy, which is that process of refining metals. Uh, in the process of refining metals, you take what's raw and unusable, and it is formed to become strong and to accomplish a better purpose. And in metallurgy, there's intense heat of the furnace, which separates the metal from the dross, pure, bring purification. As well as through intense heat and, and pressure and pounding, the metal is skillfully shaped for its purpose. And then through tempering, tempering which is heat applied over an extended period of time, especially steel, gains extraordinary strength while retaining uh, flexibility rather than being brittle. The Lord says in Zechariah chapter 13, I will put my people into the fire and refine them as one refined silver and I will test them as gold is tested. They will call upon my name and I will answer them. I will say, they are my people and they will say, the Lord is my God. Now, when we're suffering, the person, you, are being challenged at the very core of your character. And in that challenge, you, we're all asking the question of who am I? Who am I really? And in answering the question of who am I, it's actually not possible to understand who you are without deep engagement and dialogue with God, who often uses the context of suffering in order to reveal your true character. This is actually the uh, thesis of the uh, great Christian Swiss psychiatrist Paul Tournier in his uh, mid-20th century book called The Meaning of Persons. It's, it's a good book to read, not an easy one, but a, good, but a good one. And the thesis of Tournier is that we all have what he would call persona and we have person. We have both. The persona is what we project out to others as well as the ex it's the expectations that people have upon us. Whereas the person is the actual real you. Persona and person are not the exact same, not by any means. And oftentimes our persona is not only the expectations of others upon us, but it's our own expectations of ourselves driven by fear and by, by pride. And the only way to really come to a place of being able to differentiate and understand not your persona, but who you really are, which is embedded uh, ultimately in a, in a deep mystery, which is part of what Tournier uh, demonstrates in this book, is that the discovery of the true self requires deep dialogue with God, as the Holy Spirit, who has been given, whispers to you and attempts to teach you who you really are, and it requires deep prayer and usually a spiritual director and the constant returning to scripture. And it also typically requires the context of suffering, which forces us to go beyond persona 
uh, into the discovery of your true character. Viktor Frankl, he experienced that tension uh, between persona and his person on the very first night that he arrived in Auschwitz. You see, uh, he had been a rising professor himself at the University of Vienna, and he had been uh, working on and writing a, a major work in psychiatry that was refuting the works of Sigmund Freud and Alfred Adler, and he had written this manuscript while uh, in, a, in the ghetto before he had arrived at Auschwitz, and it was the only thing that he was able to take with himself. He literally took his manuscript and he stitched it within the lining of his overcoat. And on the first night he arrived at Auschwitz, he had fortunately passed and got through to the baths uh, where the prisoners who weren't taken to the gas chamber went. And he met there, uh, a, a, he described him as a senior uh, Jewish supervisor, and he went up to him, whispering to him, saying, I have my life's work in this coat. What do I do? How can I hold on to this? And he said the man looked puzzled at him and then began to smile and then mockingly laughed and swore at him. And it was at this very moment uh, that Frankel says he realized that his entire former life was struck out. Just uh, after this, uh, the guard ordered all of the prisoners who were there to remove all their clothing. Every last hair of their bodies was shaved. And Frankel says, the only things left for my life were my shoes that he took with him, his belt, and his glasses. And he said they, after uh, receiving these showers, standing out completely uh, stark naked uh, in the, the cold autumn, uh, there, he realized that his entire persona had been completely and utterly stripped. But then something happened to Frankel. And he says it's the most important uh, event, uh, essentially the event of his life. Because as they were standing there, he was given a new set of clothes, and it was a lot worse than the clothes that he had just given up. And as he put on the clothes, he put on a coat, and in this coat, was no longer the manuscript that he had labored so long and hard for, but there was one small scrap of paper. And in, on this paper, as he pulled it out, it was from the Hebrew prayer book, and on uh, one of the prayers was the Shema Yisrael, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And he knew that this was a signal to him from God. Everything had been stripped. There was no persona left. There was no identity uh, to cling to. But he realized, even in that moment, that he still had his person that the Nazis could not touch. And he also now realized with this scrap piece of paper that he had God, whom suffering by no means could take away. And in this experience, despite the terrible evil and the suffering at Auschwitz, it was realized, he realized, that, that it was not a dead end, but it was in fact the path to discover 
his true character, his true person. And that event uh, set him on the way to understanding more deeply who he was. And indeed, my friends, your suffering, your suffering even right now, is this opportunity for you to grow in becoming who God truly wants you to be. But then there's this final movement. We go from suffering to an endurance, and from endurance to character, and then finally, from character to hope, verse 4. And character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. And it's interesting, many have discovered this pathway from suffering to hope. Frankel discovered the pathway, and uh, after uh, being freed from Auschwitz, he went on to uh, lead a distinguished academic career in, in psychiatry, uh, and he ad did advance his psychotherapeutic model, which he rewrote, and eventually became called logotherapy, this uh, opportunity to find meaning, even meaning within one's suffering. And it's not without its critics, and it's not a perfect model, but it clearly has helped many people around the world over the last two generations to find meaning and hope. The pathway is also exemplified in uh, the civil rights movement in, uh, led by uh, Martin Luther King Jr., who we remember uh, tomorrow. That movement, when you think about it, uh, began with pe people experiencing significant social suffering. But through that, they uh, also came as a movement to great endurance and able to overcome the opposition and the, the, the hatred and, and the violence. And part of that, that, that movement that made it successful was character, character and specifically, it was characterized by a, a movement and belief of nonviolence, which King taught that it was a, a, a way of approaching evil guided by love rather than by hate. And it was a movement with, with this resounding vision of hope guided by the vision of the glory of the Lord and that kingdom ethic. You, you don't have to be a Christian to travel the path from suffering to hope. But even so, my question then is, why does the path exist at all? Where did it come from, and why can people experience it? And of course, the Bible makes the answer to that question very clear, that it's Jesus Christ who created the path from suffering to hope, and he is the one who actually completes it. And though we didn't read it, in verse 6 even, for while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. And what Paul is, uh, in, in various ways, in, in these early chapters of Romans, is he is arguing that Jesus Christ went into, he entered into evil itself. He entered into the very suffering itself. If suffering is this black hole, if it's this implosion of the good, if it's evil devouring life, if it's the erosion of paths of hope, because of who Christ is in his person as the God-man. In Hebrews, in, in chapter 5, it says, Christ, the Son of God, learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation. That's Hebrews 5, 8, and 9. Christ was sinless, but not perfect. And it was suffering 
that matured him and made him perfect. And in his perfect life, he then entered into evil itself upon the cross. He entered into suffering itself. And in some mysterious reversal of entering into the evil of that black hole, everything was absorbed. Everything was reversed in his actions because of who he was. And Christ became the source of expanding good, of multiplying life, even unto eternal salvation, of creating the pathway to hope. So the only reason why the path exists is because Christ made the way. And so I think suffering perhaps is the problem. But the Bible's response is Christ is the answer to the problem and he's the one who forms this path to hope. But then we might ask, well, what, how do I know what false hope is and what true hope is? Because clearly there are different kinds of hope. False hope can get you through suffering. It happens for a lot of people. There's no doubt about it. But that false hope will fail in the end. And actually, Frankel talks about this, in which he saw some of the prisoners who survived the concentration camps, including at Auschwitz, who had a hope that they would be able to see their spouse or their children or some other loved one. And that was the sustaining hope that got them through the concentration camp. And uh, he talks about many that he met uh, after the war in which they would return to their villages and they would discover that they were the only one and that they were utterly alone. Really fulfilling the, what, uh, what Paul talks about. It's a hope that le leads to shame and disillusionment. But then there is a true hope. There's a true hope. It's not finite and fickle and contingent. It's a true hope that leads to what is enduring and dependable and certain. And it leads to confidence. You see, there are many false hopes, and they're usually characterized by that finitude. And they will fail you in the end. Human love, no matter how good it might be, cannot be the central object of your hope. It will guarantee, no matter what love that is, from your parents, from a child, from a spouse, or from any other person in friendship, it will fail in the end because of death. There must be something that transcends it. And the scriptures call us to faith in Christ as the object of our hope, the one who endures. But then you say, well, how do I know that's just not an illusion? Just a, something to get me through, but it's just another false hope. Of course, many people say that. Well, that's the whole point of this path that the Apostle Paul is describing for us. He, he's saying that as you suffer, you will experience some transformation in you. And he's indicating in verse 5, it's the Holy Spirit... It's the Holy Spirit who will guide you and strengthen you and give you the strength that you need, the fortitude, uh, to get through the suffering. And all along the way, God will provide signals of God's love. For Frankel, it was just a piece of a scrap paper. That's all he needed. 
But when you're in the place of suffering, God will be sending you signals. You just need the eyes to see them. And as you suffer and as you begin to experience the strength within you, you begin to see God more clearly. It's true. I've experienced this myself, and I'm sure many of you have experienced the same thing. In which then some of the false personas begin to drop off and you begin to realize within the suffering of who you're really supposed to be and what you're supposed to really do. And then the thought occurs to you, wait a minute, if God can change me for the better within the awfulness of this suffering, what does he have in store when the glory comes? You see, that's where the certainty begins. You look at the internal change within you and you're amazed that it could even happen. It shouldn't happen. They should go in opposite directions. But you be begin to realize that you're being changed. And it, it grows a certainty within you that what you are believing, where you have put your faith, is true hope. The evidences are embedded right there. And they endure. And they won't lead you to shame. And so su suffering is, the is not the problem, but it is the pathway that we need to hope. Well, last Sunday, as I was talking to my friend Dr. V, and as he shared his story, I, I asked him, how have you seen God in, in all of this hardship? And he took a long pause. We were on FaceTime, and I kind of, he was close up on, on, his, on his phone as we were talking. And uh, in this pause, long, all of a sudden, he, he began to just, his eyes were streaming tears. And he said, you know, uh, when I first got fired from my job, I, I told my, my, my son, he had a, at the time, it was a 10-year-old, his 10-year-old son. And my son said to me after I told him what happened, he said, Daddy, does that mean you're not going to be going on all those academic conferences anymore? And he had been going on, on about six on average each year. He said, yeah, it, it, I don't think so. I'll be staying home. He said, Daddy, that's exactly what I've been asking God for. <laughs> and even though he experienced a, a, a downcast soul, that the words of his son just stuck with him. And then he said to me, you know, my second year as the assistant professor was my best academic year. Produced the most papers, had the most kind of uh, acknowledgement from others of success. But it's funny, it was absolutely the worst year of my marriage. And not only that, I was beginning to wonder whether our marriage was even going to make it. Since I've been fired, over these last year and a half, two years, my marriage has never been better. And I've never been closer to my wife. And then he said, I don't know how I've been able to take care of all these patients because I've been dealing with my own issues. But he immediately went into a clinical, uh, uh, a clinical job taking care of um, his patients as a psychologist. And he said, somehow, in all of this, I've had strength to care for my patients, and I think I've become a better caregiver because of all that I've been going through. I share this story about Dr. V because there's no happy ending. 
There's no you know, pretty present with a bow tied up. There's no resolution. There's no clear vindication. And yet, his testimony to me proves, once again, Paul's words, demonstrates as evidence that there was true, real hope. Hope in Dr. V, despite the hardship. Well, what about you? Where is Christ seeking to create a new strength of endurance and fortitude in you? Where is he taking away and melting away the dross and the personas and calling you to become the man or woman that you have truly been made to be? And where are the false hopes that are getting you into, that are leading you down the wrong path and will only disappoint? And can you see the evidences and the signs of God in his love? Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because the love of God has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to you. Lord, we pray that you would help us on this path to see you and to know you. And we give you our lives because we desperately need you. Fill our hearts with this hope. In Christ's name, amen.